As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. We expected Man United to go to Liverpool and take a beating, but the only ones who suffered were those of us who watched that meeting. It wasn't a classic or a statement of absolution, but we saw a bizarre red card and Anana's bizarre distribution. In the Sean Dyche derby, Burnley were hoisted by their own petard and Wolves' Raul Jimenez received the first ever butt red card. Elsewhere, Harry Kane keeps on scoring. Inter Milan are still soaring while Real Madrid are rip-roaring. But the weekend kicked off with a cynical shocker, the latest embarrassing announcement from Major League Soccer. Mine! name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, returning hero, Taylor Rockwell. Hi, Taylor. Hello. I missed your introductions. That was phenomenal, my friend. It really does sum up the entire weekend, uh, which I was excited to watch some of uh, on a small screen while my daughter uh, occupied the main screen with children's movies, because that's how it works here. Uh, It's a dictatorship run by a toddler. There you go. Um, Awkward question to kick off, Taylor. Where have you been these past few weeks? Like we we've been waiting for you in every recording, and you haven't shown up. What's... <laughs> just hanging out, just ah, you know, doing okay. my thing. Uh, my wife had a baby, uh, baby Woo! number two. Uh, Winona Louise Rockwell is is with us amongst us. Was screaming just before we started recording, which I think at least two of the co-hosts got to hear, and uh, one of them, Graham, I think, got to have flashbacks to how much he does not want that anymore. Uh, so yes, we we've had a baby. Uh, my wife is doing well. Baby doing well. Uh, elder sister very much in love. Very much enjoys her, her little sister. Uh, things going pretty well so far. Congratulations Thank to you. the Rockwells. Thank you very much. Well done, Taylor and Co. It was all me. It was all me. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that was implicit in my thanks. A joke that always makes my wife not crack a smile. <laughs> yep. Going to move on. Yeah. Um, also joining us, Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. How's things with you, bud? Um, no one cares about that. Taylor, let's go back to you and your wife having a new baby. Um, is, is there... Is there um, any particular reasoning behind the name Winona Louise? It's a beautiful name, and you have picked you, you and your wife have picked two lovely names for both of your children now, Thank with you. Reverie and Winona. Very nice. Was there a particular line of thinking behind Winona as a first name? Yeah, per our conversation before we started recording, we wanted them both to be sound like posh British actresses, so uh-huh. that they could then uh, be Hollywood stars. That right. was the plan. Uh, new no. with with uh, Reverie, our eldest. It was a uh, piano piece by a composer whose name I still can't Mendelssohn, say properly. I believe it's Mendelssohn, uh, right? <laughs> it is Claude uh, Debussy, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Debussy, still can't pronounce it properly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but my yeah. wife play, played piano. We have a big piano in uh, one of our rooms downstairs. Uh, and it's a piece she really likes. And it's like, uh, I think it means like daydream or to bl- be blissfully lost in one's own thoughts. With Winona, we just really like the name. Hmm. Uh, and then we were trying to find a, a middle name that we liked that went with that. Louise is a family name. Uh, but we learned really quickly that kind of everything rhymes with Winona. And it's hard not to have a rhyming middle name, which we didn't want. Uh, and then we realized that we could call her Winnie Lou. And that is what we are going for. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Winnie Lou is with us amongst us. It is... We get a lot of like, oh, that's an interesting name. And then the other one that we totally did not see coming, but should have seen coming, is that we do live in the South, uh, where the Judd family has existed. So 
it's an interesting indicator as to where a person is from, that if they're from the north, they will say Winona, and if they're from the south, she is Winona. So we have we have learned very quickly that we're going to have to embrace Winona and Winona as a mutual name. Winona sounds like it rhymes with less things than Winona. <laughs> My Sharona. Girona. Oklahoma. Oh, that was the first text I got from a buddy of mine was like... I also also like how Ryan is fixated on the rhyming thing. He's like, can I integrate this into my intros? Is Mm. this going to make my work life easier? Ryan, that's well played on your part. There you go. All right. Well, uh, a big win for Winona and the Rockwells. Uh... Thank you very much. Oh, joining (laughs) us also, Graham Ruthven. Hi, Graham. Hello, uh, Taylor. Let's go back yeah. to Taylor again. Yeah. That's the interesting mm-hmm. part yeah. of this <laughs> intro. Um, I presume you're, you're, you missed out a middle name there, Miss McSauce. I'm presuming is somewhere, or at least Super John McGinn. Winona Louise, Super John McGinn, Rockwell. I'm presuming is the, is the I think that name. was promised at some point, to be honest. Yeah, it's on the birth certificate. I just didn't tell her. I wrote it okay, in uh, very quickly at the end. Yes, it's Winona Louise, Scott McTominay, Rockwell. Uh, we went full. We went the full, the full name there. Uh, yeah. Scott McTominay, Graham's son, Rockwell. Really, to give the okay, full, yeah, to give sure. the full billing. Excellent. Yeah. You held up your end of the bargain. Thank you. <laughs> By the way, yeah, listener, uh, Graham Rosman has uh, agreed his next child, uh, you, the Patreon voters will actually get to, uh, <laughs> the Patreon listeners, excuse me, are going to get to vote on the name. Is that right, Graham? <laughs> Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show to get your votes in early, Soccer Graham. McSoccer yeah. face coming yeah. to the Ruffin family. Let's go. We're really, really selling those subscriptions now. <laughs> <laughs> there is uh, plenty of other bonus content on Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show if you'd like to support us that way. Graham going around theme parks, uh, bonus episodes of this here podcast, access to the discord you can't spell discord without disco don't know why that's relevant i like saying it uh plenty to get to in this here weekend review but the biggest story perhaps joe of the weekend something that happened in a lovely friday news dump <laughs> on friday uh the golden rule in sort of pr and communications you only release like a press release on a friday if you want it buried that's what they tried to do uh of course the decision for major league soccer not to send its first teams to the u.s open cup uh from next year instead opting to enter teams from mlx next pro the development league uh, Commissioner Don Garber has been quite critical of the competition, Joe. I think it's fair to say in recent months and perhaps years, calling it a very poor reflection on what we're trying to do with soccer at the highest level. Uh, and that may have something to do with the fact that MLS doesn't have full control over that competition like it does its own product. I, th- I think, Joe, just to editorialise from my perspective, it's pretty disappointing. It's a bit embarrassing for MLS for them to do this disregard for the heritage of the US game. It feels to me a good summary is that MLS wants to grow itself and not necessarily the sport. It seems that way. It absolutely seems that way. And this decision is the latest example of a, in a line of a whole list of decisions that have kind of gotten us to that end. To start with, the U.S. Open Cup is imperfect. And we have all poked fun at this tournament on the show. And we did it all the way through the last U.S. Open Cup. We've done it before. And, and likely we will do it again. But it's not something to be abandoned, right? Because it's imperfect doesn't mean that it's it's useless or doesn't have value. It doesn't have potential. Not only does the U.S. Open Cup have a ton of history that is worth preserving, but it's got that potential, too, to go along with it. It's the only chance for a major upset opportunity in the entire American soccer landscape, right? Without promotion and relegation, this is the David versus Goliath opportunity, right? There, it doesn't exist otherwise, and even if the USL comes out and does add Pro-Rel, that's still not the same as having the chance to go out there and, and take down an MLS team in an actual game that matters, Having upsets is like a really American thing, it seems to me. That's the biggest reason why March Madness captures the entire attention of the United States every single year. And you can have something that could could be conceivably similar to March Madness. So I don't know exactly, I guess I can understand MLS's reasons for it because they've, they've said it and Garber's alluded to it before. But the idea of just giving up on that is kind of dumb to me. Like it's frustrating as a fan, but it also seems short-sighted, right? MLS adds in competitions that they can control. They add in League's Cup. They have the regular season. They expand the playoffs. They're adding games to the calendar because they want more money. They want more revenue. They want to be in control. And I, I understand all of that stuff. I'm not even sure that all that stuff is is wrong either. But giving up on the U.S. Open Cup, not only does it kind of suck for, for all of us and for fans, and certainly for lower division teams, but I, I think it's just like a, a bad business move, potentially. MLS could have given their teams the choice to expand their rosters, to bring in MLS Next Pro players. And and probably they wouldn't be dealing with this backlash right now. Like, I think this situation was so poorly handled. Apparently that idea was brought up and dismissed. And I cannot for the life of me understand why. We already saw heavy rotation in these games, in the early round games involving MLS teams. 
eh, probably wasn't going to change. That happens in every domestic cup competition around the world, right? Like and nobody really complains too much about that. So we already saw a heavy rotation. Why just go take all your toys and go home instead of just making it even a little bit easier for your teams to rotate? I, I, again, there are, there are things that I think need to be improved about the U.S. Open Cup, even like little things like the logo design and some of the branding stuff I, I don't think is good. Like we've talked about this stuff before about ways to improve the Open Cup. There are tangible things, even how it's presented in local markets and even how teams in, in the USL and whatever emphasize this tournament, but they're doable improvements to make in a tournament that I think genuinely has potential and has a future. It also wouldn't surprise me. I've been talking for a long time and I'm sorry. It wouldn't surprise me if we haven't heard the last of this story and, and listeners probably haven't heard the last of it because we have plans to talk about it more on the show later in the week. Um, but I don't know if this is going to be the final chapter on all that either way. It sucks, it's disappointing, and I'm not really sure, even from an MLS perspective, that it's the right thing to do. Yeah, this is a league that already doesn't have any promotion or relegation. You kind of reference that, Joe, in saying this is the only opportunity that a lot of lower league teams have to take a chunk out of the MLS teams, and it's a big reason why the US Open Cup is so precious because it's the only route for mobility for those clubs. And MLS, as you say, Joe, has just completely cut itself off from the rest of the American soccer ecosystem by doing this. I think the impact on the lower leagues will be will be huge. The market markets will be impacted by this. Clubs will be impacted. There will be a material impact. And the optics of the whole thing, I think this is this is the thing that really stings is 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 the optics with this year, of course, the League's Cup being created, which all of a sudden that has a different look to it. I have been looking at that. I think a lot of people were looking at that on as being on the turf of the CONCACAF Champions League. And what was the purpose of the League's Cup when you already had the Champions League? I now think there's a bit more clarity on why League's Cup was created. MLS just wanted to create or wanted to control its own domestic cup competition, albeit with Liga Meke's teams involved. So I have to imagine League's Cup was created with this sort of pullback on the US Open Cup in mind. As I say, the optics of the whole thing are terrible, particularly because of the timing where this year the US Open Cup maybe had the most eyes on it than ever before because of Lionel Messi. And whether or not this is accurate, the optics are that MLS has been annoyed by a competition that isn't theirs getting all this attention from their big star signing and 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 deciding to kind of end that and picking up their ball and going home so nobody else can can play with it. It kind of feels a little bit vindictive. It feels like MLS just wants to control the whole thing. So from from beginning to end of this story, and as you say, Joe, I'm not convinced we have seen the end. It, it really stinks. Uh, I don't disagree with anything that either of you all have said. To play devil's advocate or to use a devil uh, to then play devil's advocate, uh, Alexi Lalas was, was tweeting or Xing or whatever it is, basically saying that like uh, soccer Twitter has been in an uproar about this decision that some MLS like fan groups have been very, very frustrated by this decision, but that largely it's one that most mainstream soccer fans in this country aren't going to care about. And so maybe that is also part of MLS's thinking is it's just an issue that will blow by and their expectation is that no one will care. Do you all feel like that's the case? Do you feel like it is sort of an issue that only sort of soccer hipsters are, are frustrated by? Or do you think it will be something that has more wide ranging effects? I, I agree that with that in principle in that materially it might not affect the US soccer fans experience so much, but I think it's the principle, Taylor. And I think it, what it suggests. And also I wondered whether the backlash has been stronger than MLS would have expected on this issue. And I even wondered whether like a European Super League style U-turn might be coming in, in the next few days based on the backlash. It's possible, right? You think? I mean, I wouldn't hate that. I, I, MLS, for as much as they seem to like to experiment and, and be cutting edge in what they're applying, they also don't seem like they love being questioned a whole bunch. Yeah. So I, I don't know how much they would walk that yeah. back, but maybe. Yeah, I think that's going to be the really interesting thing. We're going to find out where the real power lies in the American soccer landscape now. Will the USSF, will they take any action against MLS? Will there be any sort of pushback from the Federation who, in theory, are like the sanctioned body in, in club soccer in America? But we all know that MLS have a huge amount of power in that landscape. So is the Federation going to sanction the league in any way? I, I saw um, Paul Tenario tweeting out stuff about how there are um, like like rules and agreements in place and 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 con a constitution essentially that this might actually violate. So the federation might have grounds to prevent MLS from doing this, but will they actually 
enforce that power. If if we could just be normal for like one year, that would be so cool. If American soccer could just be normal <laughs> Not for possible. 365 days, it's like the whiteboard that says, you know, days since injury, days since being normal, zero days, it seems like for MLS. They obviously, <laughs> Graham, I, I think a lot of the response has been, and I imagine this is sort of what Lalas is getting at in that tweet, a lot of the response has been narrative-based, right? Like, this this is not a good narrative for Major League Soccer. The PR is terrible. And that was my initial tweet, right? This comes off of MLS deciding not to change any of their roster rules in any meaningful way the day before, I believe. And then Friday, the U.S. Open Cup news drops. MLS just clearly doesn't care about the narrative, right? Like, they, they could not care less about how they're perceived. It seems maybe the backlash has been strong enough that that changes. But MLS, it seems to me, just doesn't care at all about what soccer Twitter has to say about them, right? Otherwise, they would have done a whole bunch of stuff differently a long time ago. So the takeaways here is obviously this sucks for fans. I really do believe that this is is a bad thing for certainly lower division fans, but I think for MLS fans too, and for people that watch this game and, and want to watch this sport, the question for MLS is, well, you know, maybe is there enough backlash to cause them to revisit this topic or like, have they made the right business decision or not? Like, ha- have they missed out on an opportunity to help elevate a competition that could create some wider narrative inside the American sports landscape, not the American soccer landscape, that has previously been untapped and cannot be tapped because there are no other major upset potentials inside of American soccer. MLS has never been interested in making those changes before, and U.S. soccer are obviously the ones who run this competition, so I'm not saying that there isn't any blame that falls on them. I think there probably is here. Um, It's also a hard nut to crack. So I'm sympathetic to trying to make the Open Cup better, um, but one thing I think everybody can agree on, and even MLS would agree on, is that this decision does not make the Open Cup better. It does not indeed. Plenty more to come on this subject and various uh, machinations and changes around MLS, uh, as Joe mentioned later uh, on the feed this week. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, let's get into the weekend action in the Premier League and beyond. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our weekend review. We'll turn our attention now to the Premier League, where the big story, of course, Luton captain Tom Lockyer uh, suffering cardiac arrest on the field, the 29-year-old um, suffering on the field, and had the game uh, against Bournemouth uh, was suspended at 1-1, not that the score was of any consequence, of course. Uh, Rob Edwards, Luton's manager, coming back on the field, visibly very emotional uh, when he came on to sort of clap the fans and the Bournemouth fans being very um, uh, uh, very good uh, in the situation as well. Uh, you'll remember, Graham, Tom Lockyer collapsed in the playoff final over the summer as well, where uh, Luton were promoted and that game continued. Um, so it's the second time this year that it's happened. He had heart surgery after that was clear to play. Uh, he's been, uh, he's as we record, I believe he's in hospital having tests. Uh, he's, the Luton have issued a statement asking for uh, privacy for him and his family, which, of course, we will respect. Um, but it's a very difficult situation for the club, uh, for the player, and we wish them all the best, of course, Graham. Yeah, frightening scenes at the Vitality Stadium over the weekend. Obviously, it's good news that Tom Lockyer um, is stable. I read earlier today that um, they're still undergoing tests to determine what his recovery will be. You mentioned the the crowd there, Ryan. So first first and foremost, obviously, Tom Lockyer's health is, is paramount. But you mentioned the crowd and the reaction, which that game wasn't at Luton. It was away at Bournemouth. It's an away crowd. I thought it was quite heartening the way that fans reacted and there was no kind of dissent at the match being abandoned midway through the second half or anything like that. And you could see Rob Rob Edwards, as you say, Ryan, who was visibly emotional as he went round and and, and thanking all the fans. So obviously it was a terrifying thing. And as I say, Lockyer's health is paramount. But it also showed that football fans will rally round when something like this happened. I, I saw flags pinned to like the fence outside the Vitality Stadium from Luton fans saying like, thank you to Bournemouth and everything like that. So yeah, that that was in very difficult 
and terrifying circumstances, that was uh, quite spiriting, quite heartening. It was indeed. We wish, of course, all the best to Lockyer and his family and all involved at Luton. Uh, we hope him a speedy recovery. Um, let's go, shall we, to Anfield. Taylor, we were expecting Manchester United to be delivered a beatdown when they visited yeah. Liverpool, a stadium, uh, well, a team who, have, of course, had a very good record. Uh, they're now the first team to take points off of Liverpool at home this season. Football uh, is weird. This sport is so stupid. <laughs> like, how, how did that happen? It, it's because, Graham... Everyone thought it was going to be a huge beatdown. So Man United, who I think I think it was the Guardian who described him, uh, maybe on a rival podcast, saying um, Man United are mediocrity with occasional flashes of brilliance. I'm not sure this is brilliance. No, yeah, was this brilliance? No brilliance. <laughs> but it was impressive in terms of a defensive display. It was impressive in terms of what we expected from this Manchester United team. Sorry, at this point. sorry. Can I can I jump in, Graham, and then I'll, I'll turn it to you. I, I genuinely, and I'm not trying to pile on, Taylor, sorry, we could have started with the Leverkusen chat instead of this to bring your entrance back to the show in a, a slightly more positive light. <laughs> I, I don't think Manchester United did anything particularly impressive in this game. They didn't control the ball. They didn't control field position. They didn't create anything, really, certainly not in the first 45 minutes, a little bit well, more in the second the half. Well, they only one chance of the game uh, Yeah, for, that's for Hoyland. I mean, Liverpool had a bunch of chances off set pieces and balls in the box in the first half. Liverpool outcreated Manchester United. The only thing that Manchester United did well was cross their fingers and hope that Liverpool wouldn't find the back of the net. And that's what happened. I think that's like, true. I, I, don't, I, I don't think the narrative of Manchester United doing much of anything on the impressive side in this game is accurate. Okay, well, I, so look, it, Liverpool, Liverpool obviously were, were lackluster in this game, Joe. Unable to create in the final third, but can we not give Man United credit for the way they defended? I thought, you know, Amrabat and, and Mainu in front of the back four, four were quite impressive. Uh, they they limited the chances that Liverpool had, arguably. Is I, that not something to... to in that, in, the, in that, theoretically, Liverpool could have had more. I think that, that is true. But I, I don't think I really agree that Liverpool didn't create enough. In the, I mean, obviously, you want to create more every single game, every single moment. But Liverpool had the chances to go ahead. They had the chances in the first half. They had some chances in the second half. They had half. shots. They, I'm uh, not convinced they had chances. What they had on earth is the difference, Graham? <laughs> but f- 15 of them are outside. The- Joe, you're often the one to differentiate, differentiate sure. between shots and shot quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the single big, there was one single big chance, as Opta calls it, in this match. And it wasn't a Liverpool chance. It was the Hoyland chance on, on the breakaway. So while I definitely agree... This was by no means a complete performance by Manchester United. They could barely hold on to the ball at times. But defensively, I thought they did some things well. They did a good job of maintaining their defensive line because so often in the past, we have seen this team become fragmented and get all bent out of shape in games like this. And that didn't really happen here. I thought Raphael Varane had a particularly good game. There were a couple of times when he was moving the defensive line higher and um, he was the one dropping it deeper at other times. So it wasn't just in in his engagements. I thought in terms of, the organisation, it just felt a little bit more coherent with him involved. But the Liverpool discussion is interesting because they did have plenty of shots. Um, 15 of their 34 shots are from outside the box. A lot of the times it felt like Salah, who is often guilty of just taking pot shots when Liverpool are struggling to break down a team. I thought Cody Gakpo was guilty of it as well when he mm, came too off the bench. And if you look at the XG per shot, it was much lower than Liverpool's usual XG per shot. So... They did have shots. They clearly had Manchester United pegged back. But to be honest, towards the end of this game, I I was quite confident this was going to finish goalless. I didn't feel like either team was going to make a breakthrough because it was such a poor quality game as a whole. I think we've talked about this, or maybe I've talked about this previously with this Liverpool team or Liverpool teams of the past under Klopp. I think sometimes when they have that billing, when they have that, they're going to put this team to the sword. That seems to be where they struggle because I think... When you have an expectation that you will win or win comfortably, not saying that these elite professional athletes are akin to the way I play, uh, but like I, I think there can be something for not having that that switch turned on that maybe you need to be turned on that you might if you're playing Real Madrid or Barcelona or Bayern Munich or whomever. And I think when you have an expectation that we're just going to destroy this team, there is that feeling of we've got time. We'll keep creating. We'll find a way through. And then at a certain point, that becomes like, oh, no, we're not finding a way through. And that kind of creates its own panic. So I think I'm somewhere in the middle of this that uh, like I thought Liverpool played well, just not good, I guess, basically. And I feel like Manchester United played average. Like I, I did. I agree that I don't think they did much. Uh, yes, there's the chance created. I thought you, you can sort of spotlight uh, Veron and Johnny Evans and some of what they did defensively. But 
it, it didn't feel to me like there was some master game plan that nullified everything Liverpool were throwing at them. It felt like they sort of, to Joe's point, everybody crossed their fingers, held on, and Liverpool couldn't take their chances cleanly, uh, even though I think they had a pretty sizable advantage on the XG. Taylor, I do think there might be something in that that sort of psychological point about Liverpool and how they approach games like this sometimes, where they are expected, like, no one expected them, um, not, excuse me, everyone expected them to win this, and not only did everyone expect them to win it, they expect them to win it comfortably. Yeah. I had Liverpool minus two handicap in my bet. I saw so many Liverpool fans before the game expecting a big win. I, uh, Jamie Carragher for the the game on the Friday night to wind up Gary Neville, he's wearing a Christmas jumper with the 7-0 scoreline on it. So I compare <laughs> that build-up to last season's game at Anfield, when it kind of felt like going into that game, Man United were a serious team again, again, and they got smashed 7-0 because Liverpool are right at it from the start. And the atmosphere in this match from early on was that Liverpool would do the same again, but it felt a little bit flat and that the, the atmosphere in, in terms of both the, the players on the pitch and the fans in the stand then turns to kind of frustration when things aren't panning out that way. And I think that leads to, as I mentioned, like Mohamed Salah taking shots from 30 yards when it's not really on or Cody Gakpo, Gakpo doing the same thing. So I wouldn't go as far as saying it's like complacency, but mm. mentally it felt like Liverpool maybe weren't in the best place possible for this one. Yeah. Yeah, I think, especially with this Man United team where it feels to be like the understanding of them is uh, can play on the counter, so you have to worry about that, but can be got at on the counter simultaneously. If you're a Liverpool team who are basically being briefed, uh, like, you know, we've got to be very wary of how they play on the counter, but also we've got to take our opportunities with the background of everyone saying you're going to win 7-0. I just think you end up getting maybe mixed messages of sorts. Uh, and I still think that they were, as Joe already pointed out, like the better team, I thought, as a, watching this as a Manchester United fan, it was very much like, oh boy, this is not going to be an, a, a fun uh, late morning, early afternoon. The first 20 minutes in particular, yeah. where Onana, the Liverpool had the three yeah. attackers camped on the edge of the box, like sprinters <laughs> waiting for the, the starting gun. Those first 20 minutes made me think, yeah, this could this could get can pretty I, ugly. From can, I, can I ask about Anana, actually? He said after the game, uh, you want to tell me in six months the best goalkeeper in the Champions League last yeah, season become the wor- can become the worst in the world? No, I know I'll be all right here at Man United. It's just a matter of time. I appreciate the fact that he's backing himself there, but the goalkeeper routines, Graham, like there was the one where like he would like tap it to... Well, no, Varane would tap it to him and he'd boot it downfield. And then every other Anana distribution seems to be directly out of play in a diagonal line before inside his own half. Well, um, I, was, I see what he was trying to do, trying to get it to the wide players. But, like, I couldn't quite figure out what was going on with Anana in this game. And, every, like, it didn't have a terrible game otherwise. I mean, all the shots he faced were directly at him. So he didn't have well, that's, to, he wasn't that, that's been much. a problem in the past. So. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> that's true. Like, that, yeah. That, that was the brief for Liverpool, I suppose. Fire straight at him. Yeah, Ryan, wait until I tell you that this was uh, his highest uh, pass completion rate in a match of the whole season, <laughs> uh, which maybe tells you quite a bit about his performance in, wow. in his defence, right? And I'm I am maybe a little bit warmer on, on Onana than other people are but there were a couple of attacks that he also started with yeah. a couple of those diagonal balls that Manchester United at the moment just don't really have the midfield to create those chances otherwise so a lot of the time it felt like he was the only route to get into the the, the final third so yes a lot of those passes did go straight out of play but I would argue with more players who can take the ball on the half turn and move it in, into the midfield maybe he wouldn't feel the need to play like a 40 yard pass every single time a timeout from the the penalty box yeah that's fair enough um uh Diego Dallo with the uh, double yellow card for descent as well at the end of the game that was uh, ridiculous by the way did anyone so, else think that red card well, was a ridiculous decision I, I suppose we don't know what he said but it, it must be pointed out he was right about the decision he was it, complaining yeah. about and this happened <laughs> twice in the Premier League this this weekend where yeah. the referees got the initial decision wrong and then punished the player for protesting it it was Gary O'Neill in the Wolves game yeah um against West Ham who had a, a similar sort of thing but yeah I thought it was just needless. It, it it said to me. It, it really felt to me like Michael Oliver had just he he just had enough and just said, "I'm going to send you off for yeah. this." It, it didn't really feel like it was by the letter of the law necessarily. Well, I guess yeah. Time, time maybe we'll find out what he said exactly, but time will tell on that one. But yeah, a very bizarre incident. And uh, Graham Virgil Van Dyke with the uh, comments afterwards stirring the pot a little bit with they were <sighs> yeah. buzzing with a point. Said Virgil Van Dyke. He caught some strays from uh, Roy Keane for that one. 
Yeah, big uh, Rodri wet wipe vibes to Virgil van Dijk's comments <laughs> after the game. Look, I can obviously see his point. Manchester United didn't really offer much, even though they created that one big chance. Um, they didn't create a lot in possession, but my golden rule is if you don't win a game, you don't get to complain about the, how the other team <laughs> played. Like, yeah. yeah, I just I don't like that at all. Graham, uh, I, I agree with you on that one, uh, but I want to go back to Michael Oliver for a moment because like, the way you just described him reminded me he's the fourth official for the you, you cannot kick that bottle away moment, right? The, the, like the greatest uh, commentary piece of all time from Gordon Strachan where he's yes. narrating Arsene Wenger getting <laughs> red carded for kicking a bottle. I'm pretty sure it's Michael Oliver who's the fourth official who's like, hey, you can't do that. And like calls the ref over to make him give him a red card for kicking a bottle. Maybe Michael Oliver is just in moments very much like you broke a rule and that it's not allowed and I'm going to give you a card even though I'm the one who got this wrong. Uh, yeah, may maybe that is his, his vibe. Maybe he just wants to be on camera and has to dish out some cards to make it happen. Yeah, I think that's probably right. To be honest, it, it felt like a very human moment. Like we've all been there where you're just like, oh, shut up. Here's a red card. <laughs> is that what but you do as a referee, you're not really meant to be human. So that's yeah. a bit of an issue. <laughs> okay, we're we'll... bringing cards to recording sessions. <laughs> For Ryan. <laughs> Hey, steady on, steady on. Um, probably spent a bit too much time talking about a game that wasn't very good, so we can move on. But um, Luke Shaw with the handball uh, situation as well. That felt like one that was given a few weeks ago. I don't know the rules of soccer anymore. I'm just going to leave it there. But uh, yeah. Nobody does. I'm no. not sure I have anything else to add. Joe's got a lot of thoughts on officiating, I thought. I'm just yeah. I'm just still in shock about our interpretations of this game. So, yeah, we should, we should move on. Let's, let's move forward. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe, how about your interpretations of the other Manchester team, Man City, with a 2-2 draw against Crystal Palace. The title defence given another blow here, giving up a 2-0 lead uh, against Crystal Palace, a team, Joe, who've caused them a few problems in previous seasons as well. I wasn't quite expecting them to do so here, given Palace's recent form. But uh, yeah, here we go. City uh, dropping him again. Yeah, we brought up Andres Townsend being the thorn in Man City's side on the Patreon to end last week. And obviously it wasn't him being the thorn in Man City's side, but Crystal Palace continue to be that team. Man City, my biggest takeaway from this game, that's, that's not really tied to the game itself, but to the, the, the spot that Man City are in right now, they're now well and truly behind in the Premier League title race. They haven't kept a clean sheet in eight games in all competitions. And they're five points behind Arsenal. They're four points behind Liverpool and four points behind Aston Villa. That's not insurmountable, obviously, and certainly not for this Man City team, but they are well and truly behind the eight ball heading into the new year as we get a little bit closer to 2024. City started well in this game, so no Erling Holland here. It was Alvarez playing as the number nine. He gets a nice chance early on. City controlling the ball in the final third. It's Phil Foden and Jack Grealish that break Palace. is super low, kind of 5-4-1 block in this game. City, in general, in the driver's seat, then they take a 2-0 lead in the second half through Rico Lewis. And then they just can't finish the game. Like, I don't think there are, and I said this for a few weeks now, I don't think there are massive structural failings of Manchester City's defensive system, but I'm curious to hear what others have to say on this. I didn't think any of the the, the real chances that Crystal Palace had were City being way too open defensively. The first goal comes from a ball over the top. Ideally, you want a little bit more pressure on that long ball, but it's not like, a, again, that's not a structural failing, and the fact that everything happens perfectly for Palace on that goal I don't really blame Man City for that. Ake gets outworked on the you know, towards the back post from Mateta, and then Palace are back in it. And then all of a sudden, it's Phil Foden just completely mistiming a challenge in the box that he just ends up taking a chunk out of Mateta in City's own box. And Elise scores the penalty kick in stoppage time, and it's 2-2. And City have yet again dropped points. So it's not ideal for them, certainly. I'm still not like that worried about this City team, but the results are troubling right now. I think, uh, Joe, I agree with you. I think Phil Foden uh, like maybe doesn't press as aggressively as he could have sure. for the ball down the line uh, for the first goal. Then I think he turns the ball over kind of needlessly. That leads to the, the counterattack for Palace, and then he concedes the penalty. But it's confusing because at the same time, he has an assist for a goal. I thought he was very good. But then there are the, just those few individual moments. I think overall... I bring that up to spotlight that I, I don't think it is a, a systemic issue. I don't think it's the team even really looking lackadaisical or not having the motivation. I think it's just a couple individual moments can let you down in games like this. And I think it was Crystal Palace not really ever backing down and not really ever, even at 2-0 down, sort of just taking their foot off the gas or I guess maybe a foot off the brake, I guess. I don't know with how much they were defending. But I, it felt like uh, Mateta, Jean-Philippe Mateta is a very good example of that, that he's doing a lot of thankless running in this game. It's a 5-4-1 of sorts. At times it looked like a 5-5-0. 
at times he was very much on his own and yet he's always working always uh, i think chasing the ball down trying to apply pressure where he can he ends up scoring the goal he ends up winning the ball back that leads to the penalty so i felt like his work rate was a good representation of what palace were doing sorry i'm losing my voice consistently here uh, and simultaneously what maybe man city weren't able to do in those final 20 minutes or so the, the confusing thing about City is there are a lot of like individual success stories in this team at the moment. So Rico Lewis, I think, scores his first Premier League goal in this game. He's been very impressive in that midfield unit. You obviously have Jeremy Doku coming in in the summer and becoming one of the best wingers in the world, certainly in terms of his output. E- even Jack Grealish in this team, he's kind of risen to the Jeremy Doku um, challenge. So that that is a confusing thing about this City team is individually they still seem to be performing but then I'm not even sure if collectively that that's where the issue is. It just seems like they are losing control of moments in games and other teams are taking advantage of those uh, moments. Just going back to Jack Grealish very quickly, he scored three goals in his last three Premier League games. Uh, now, how did he celebrate? By hiring out a Nando's restaurant and get, getting them to make his own festive menu and a sauce called Super Jack Sauce. I saw that in the, the tabloid newspapers. Along with a quote, which I, 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 this doesn't seem like a real quote, but it's Jack Grealish, so who knows. I like going for nice food, but don't have to. I still love Nando's with family, even a club. I don't have to have the best table. I love 80s clubs and just chilling. I'd love to be able to do that. That's why in summer, I'm going to buy a wig. Okay. Sorry, what? <laughs> also, Graham, kicking off with I can I can get nice food, but I don't have to. It's a bit of a slight on Nando's, isn't it? <laughs> Was that no idea ma- what to read into that quote or anything that he did to celebrate scoring three goals in three Premier League games? <laughs> was that not a Mad Lib? That feels like someone else just filled in random words like to a sentence he was saying. Pick a decade for a club, especially 80s club. Yeah. Okay, great. Exactly. On to the next one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I just saw that in the in the the tabloid article that I read about the, the whole Nando's episode and had had to lift it out and mention it on the show because I just have no idea what's going on there. Excellent stuff. We love you, Jack. We also love Roy Hodgson. Very good clip going around of him uh, laughing visibly in the face of uh, Pep Guardiola when that two two goal went in. Uh, uh, Guardiola looking a little... not maliciously though. I just think he's no. like an old man having a good time. Oh yeah, the boss into town. <laughs> 100% that is the vibe, Graham. Um, Man City likely will lose more ground. They're heading to Saudi Arabia this week for the FIFA Club World Cup. Woo! Um, Joe, Nottingham Forest uh, held some Friday night lights for Tottenham. And Matt Turner did another whoopsie. Mm, no, no, I think I, I think I told everybody in the Slack that I was pretending that this game didn't happen. Um, okay. And obviously Matt Turner, no, Matt Turner did something very, very wrong. Maybe on both goals in this game, Forrest lose 2-0 to Tottenham. After being benched at the end of October, this was Turner's first, or second start, excuse me, back in the Premier League in the starting 11. He had some oopsies in this game. Starts well, good save, 20-ish minutes into the game. Nobody cares about that. Spurs take the lead in the first half. Uh, first half stoppage time. It's Kulusevsky who crosses the ball in from the left wing to Richarlison. And this goal didn't get Turner much heat on online that I saw. But the ball's coming in, and Turner gets caught in no man's land in a real way. He can't decide whether to come punch it initially or just to stay back and try to react. And his compromise, I guess, is to wait until the ball hits Richarlison's head and then come rushing at the ball as if to try to punch it away. <laughs> it looks like he thought the ball was going to sail over Richarlison and just completely misjudges it, and Richarlison gets a nice header. And then it gets even worse. 64th minute, Turner hits a pass right to Kulusevsky. Uh, Note, that's not one of his teammates. Kulusevsky then moves into the box and shoots, and Turner gets both hands up, makes contact with the shot, and it goes right through his hands into the back of the net. So, not a great moment for Matt Turner, and not a great moment for Nottingham Forest, who can't seem to find a goalkeeper that can keep the ball out of the back of their net. Uh, they make a move late in the summer and uh, have since gone from Turner to that that player that the name was escaping me, and now back to Matt Turner for no injury-related reasons. So, yeah, Forrest would like some stability in that spot. That would be ideal. Uh, plenty of stability, Graham, at Arsenal. A 2-0 win over Brighton. Gabriel Jesus and Kai Havertz with the goals here. They went top of the league, and they stayed there with this one. Yeah, this was a very controlled performance by Arsenal, which was surprising because controlling Brighton isn't easy at all. This was actually the first match in the league this season that Brighton have failed to score in. So I very much thought they they would harm Arsenal more than they did. But Arsenal, they really relish pressing them high. And I I think this highlighted just how good Arsenal can be out of possession because Brighton, 
usually very press resistant they struggled a lot to get out from the back my main takeaway from this game was the arsenal midfield so there's stuff to say about gabriel jesus and how that arsenal attack is really starting to click with him back in the number nine position but i also think we're really starting to see the new arsenal midfield settle into some form so have havertz on the left of the three rice is the base and then odegaard on on the right havertz has found a role as, as a box crashing midfielder which is really working for him he's uh, scoring a lot of goals all of a sudden odegaard has that freedom with rice in behind him and and declan rice look we already knew he was good but i think he's become arsenal's rodri i think he's kind of on that level this season or he's become a player on that level I just think he's stepped up again since joining Arsenal. And it's not just the um, defensive fibre that he gives you. It's the way he's pushing passes into Odegaard at speed and carrying the ball forward. He's a much better ball carrier than I think I'd given him credit for when he was at West Ham, maybe because he didn't have the freedom to do that as often. So I thought this was one of his best games uh, for Arsenal so far. And he was a big reason why Brighton found it so tough. Indeed. Uh, this season's Premier League winners, Aston Villa, got a 2-1 win at Brentford. Feisty game this was, Graham. Yeah, yes. a surprising amount of put housery in this match, given I'm not aware of any kind of pre-existing rivalry between them. Everything was quite serene until the Ben Mee red card. And then there yeah. were 14 yellow cards after that. And in a footballing sense, which was kind of secondary for me in this game, but I'll do a quick beat on that. Um, Villa did well to use the man advantage to, to help open up space and win the game ultimately but all the poop housery that that was the real highlight of this game uh, neil mope versus emmy martinez was great entertainment yes and then uh, ollie watkins celebration of just staring down a, a, a particular brentford fan who i think had abused him the whole match I, I, I loved that as well and i also loved watkins comments after the game where um jonathan pierce who is a, a big dull bore of a commentator in the UK was being all hand-wringing and asking him you know would you do that again you know trying to get him to kind of be like oh well that wasn't so wise Watkins was just like yeah I would do it again if he abused me like that in a game again I would do exactly the same celebration so I love that Ian Wright in the match that they should do as well he he very much enjoyed that too as did we all. Taylor, we had the Sean Dyche derby. 2-0 win for Everton at Turf Moor here. Another win for Dyche at Turf Moor. Sacked last year, of course, after a decade at Burnley. Comes back playing the soccer style they abandoned and beat them with it. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy what he has been able to do, what this Everton team has been able to do, especially after the points deduction, to have four wins from four and to play as well as they did, to look as strong as they did. They get some favorable, favorable bounces at moments in this game, but... For the most part, I just thought this was a comprehensively good performance from Everton, which, we're adding a grain of salt in here, is aided by the fact that Burnley, uh, some things have changed since last I was on this show. Burnley being bad is not one of them. Uh, they are a team that will, I guess, continue to evade serious criticism, I think because everybody loves Vincent Company and the way they won the championship last year. Maybe there's an expectation that eventually it will come good, but thus far, that eventually seems a long way away. By contrast, Sean Dyche seems to have really gotten the buy-in and gotten the spirit that we saw him get so often at Burnley, now at Everton, and for them to be out of the relegation zone comfortably despite that points deduction is just really impressive for him and the team. It is impressive indeed. Chelsea with a 2-0 win over Sheffield United. Cole Palmer and Mr. Nicholas Jackson with the goals there. Sheffield United still very much in that aformation, aforementioned relegation uh, zone at the bottom of it, in fact. Uh, Graham, a nice clip of uh, Mudrick uh, uh, that's been going viral, that shot he attempted uh, that ended up closer to the corner flag than the goal. I didn't see that clip uh, <laughs> and I didn't see that during the match, but that kind of fits for Mikhailo Mudrick and the way it's been going for him. As a Chelsea player, in terms of the impressive players in this match for Chelsea, another episode of the Cole Palmer show, you already mentioned him, Ryan, a goal and an assist in this one. We've we've already spoken about him this season, but I, I, every time I watch Chelsea, I'm just taken by how important he is to their attack when he was a bit of a summer transfer window afterthought. It didn't really seem like they had a plan for him. He's played as a number 10 in this match, so it feels like Pochettino really wants to push him into areas where he can be even more influential i actually thought it was moises caicedo whoever who was who was the most impressive this is probably the best match he's had as a chelsea player it was kind of interesting that it came in a game where enzo fernandez started on the bench i think there are real questions over that fernando's caicedo double pivot whether it can work with the two of them in there so i think if pochettino has to pick 
one over the other right now, it will be Caicedo on this basis. Although Fernandes did come off the bench in the second half and did reasonably well, but Caicedo really seems to be growing into that role now. Wow. Nice luxury to keep your reigning World Cup champion on the bench for you. Not case. bad, eh? Not bad. Not bad at all. Uh, Newcastle with a 3-0 win over Fulham. Uh, Lewis Miley become Newcastle's youngest Premier League goal scorer at the age of 17. The key point of this game, Taylor, the uh, Raul Jimenez, uh, Fulham's Raul Jimenez being sent off by oh. VAR uh, <laughs> following a dangerous jumping challenge into Sean Longstaff, shall we call it. It was, it was very strange. So, was... So, so what he seemed to do is... It looked like he was going in studs up and then tried to pull out of it and ended up literally slamming his butt into Longstaff's face. Can you imagine if John McGinn did that to someone? Oh, Jeez, I mean, oh. I think cuts. that's how the Big Bang happened. Uh, in, in this case, though, <laughs> it, it really is like Jimenez thought, if I don't catch him with the studs in a karate kick fashion, it'll only be a yellow card for sure. It, it is a terrible challenge, and it is obviously... Uh, if not facilitated, then influenced by moments before when when he feels like he was uh, hit in the face. I think Jimenez would have said deliberately. I think I think it was Lascelles would have said incidentally. I think the commentators agreed with that one. Um, but he stays angry, and I think there was that frustration when he then goes into that challenge, that sort of like, well, if you're not going to call it, you're not going to call it. But his was so egregious, and just it's one of those ones where in slow-mo it looks bad as they all do but then even in like full speed it looks somehow worse because of just how out of control he is it if it wasn't deliberate it it definitely looked deliberate put it that way so to me it is a justified red card i was not surprised to see var turn that one from a yellow to a red uh, i know marco silva then lost his mind in the post-match interview talking about how the the official was a coward uh, mm -hmm. i don't like he seemed to imply that the st james's park crowd was the ones that made him change it to a red like he didn't stand up to the to the 50,000 screaming fans I don't think it was them who made him go look at the monitor uh, and I think it was a correct red card so a moment of madness from Jimenez and then a moment of trying to cover for his player but kind of just looking like yeah. a little bit silly for Marco Silva and obviously it ends up costing Fulham badly mm -hmm. in this match they were they were do I know it was early on in the game but they seem to be set up pretty well in the early stages of, of this game and then of course they just get overrun by Newcastle but also from an individual point of view just as Raul, Raul Jimenez was finding form and looking like his old self again which I, I didn't think that would happen he scored a few goals in the last two or three games he's now got a suspension and is going to miss I presume like two matches so every way you look at it just such a stupid thing to do yeah, um, I think it's brave, frankly, to invent a new genre of red card, personally. The butt red card. <laughs> That's bravery uh, personified for me. Uh, <laughs> one other game of note, another 3-0. West Ham with a 3-0 win over Wolves, in which West Ham scored the same goal three times on the break. That's all I have to say about that matter. Wonderful stuff. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go around the rest of the continent. Back shortly. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 100 
and 75 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our weekend review. Let's go to Deutschland for the Bundesliga, where Leverkusen are still top of the league. A 3-0 win over Eintracht Frankfurt. Joseph, um, they still good. They still good, and they're still good. Taylor is back, baby. It could not be any better yep. when it comes to the Taylor Rockwell fan club <laughs> for Bayer Leverkusen. A really well-played game. There were a couple of really nice games in the Bundesliga this weekend, and this was probably my favorite. Leverkusen continued to do all of the, or basically all the fun soccer stuff, good positional play, not afraid to open up the game a little bit and, and go for it. They controlled the ball in this one. They created way better chances. They only allowed four shots to Frankfurt, a Frankfurt team that's not bad this year. They're sitting in eighth in the league. Really, really impressive. And, and the most important, the most impressive part, excuse me, of this Leverkusen team to me is the guy at the tip of the spear. It's Victor Boniface, who we talked about on the big thing a couple of weeks ago. He gets the opener for Leverkusen in this game. It's a really nice goal uh, from a right-footed goal from the left side of the box. He's now up to 13 goals between the Bundesliga and the Europa League this year. Those aren't Robert Lewandowski numbers by any stretch. They're not Harry Kane numbers by any stretch. This but they year are they really, are. This yeah, year they are. Fair enough, Taylor. They are really good Bundesliga numbers for a guy that's just not going to be playing for Xabi Alonso or for Bayer Leverkusen for too much longer. Enjoy him while he's here. Indeed. Uh, Bayern saw that 3-0 Leverkusen win, and they matched it over Eintracht Frankfurt. Uh, Harry Kane with a brace in that one. They've cut the lead. Uh, the Leverkusen have to four points and a gain in hand. Uh, Harry Kane, Joe, well, just a, just a 20 Bundesliga goals in 14 games. Now, I, I, I guess that's okay. Uh, Graham, do you want to pick that one up? <laughs> yeah, not bad numbers from uh, from Mr. Kane, obviously giving Bayern the cutting edge that they were lacking at times this season. I guess the hope in this match was that Stuttgart had been going so well this season that they would come to the Allianz Arena and really show how, uh, how good they are, but that did not happen. And this was a bit of a Borussia Dortmund at the Allianz Arena sort of performance because it was unusual to see Stuttgart pose such little threat in this game. And not only this, Bayern Munich just had so many opportunities and Alexander Nubel had a very busy evening with a number of saves um, he had to make to, to, to keep the scoreline respect, respectable um, but yeah Harry, Harry Kane he scored twice in this game that's what he does he said that was this was Bayern Munich's best performance of the season so far I can kind of see his argument it was dominant which was especially impressive because uh, Bayern Munich they were missing a lot of players through injury and illness one of the big talking points just very finally a quick beat on Alexander Pavlovich in central midfield. So he's he's 19 years old and he might be the number six that Bayern Munich needs. A lot of talk of him about him after the game. So that's something to keep an eye on with January around the corner. I saw Manuel Vaith um, tweeting and writing about how his performances and his emergence might prevent Bayern Munich from going and spending 60 to 70 million euros on a number six in, in, in January because Pavlovich, he just looks very, very promising in that role. Indeed. Uh, Augsburg with a 1-1 draw against Borussia Dortmund. Dortmund now three games without a win. One win in their last seven. Yikes, but still, hey, they won the Champions League group. That's soccer for you. Uh, my highlight <laughs> of the Bundesliga weekend, Bochum with a 3-0 win over Union Berlin. Uh, Brenton Anderson got 15 minutes in this one. Union have 10 points. Uh, they are exactly zero points above the relegation zone at the moment. Not very good for Union. Uh, Graham, I don't know if you saw that... Um, the Union Berlin fans were throwing chocolate coins onto the field at Bochum to protest against Bundesliga's uh, investment yeah. plans. And uh, Takuma Asano picks up one of the coins <laughs> and just eats it. Um, and there was, there was a, a nice uh, Es regnet Schokolade was the uh, claim on uh, German TV. It's raining yeah. chocolate, which sounds wonderful. I've sh I'm sure I've seen that with other players doing it with a bottle of beer, like a beer being thrown mm. on and a player just like taking a swig of the beer, which would have felt very German if that had been the case. But this was a league-wide protest it wasn't just union berlin fans it was across the whole division as you say ryan this this uh dfb 
investment deal that is uh, up for proposal. Obviously, fans, German fans, um, are very precious about fan ownership of clubs and not over-commercialising the league and the national game. So a lot of opposition to that, and we saw that across the Bundesliga at the weekend. We did. Tell you also lots of protests. Serie A fans, let's go there now. Uh, Lazio with a 2-0 home loss to Inter Milan. Lautaro and Marcus Turam with the goals in that one, extending Inter's lead at the top to four points. Uh, Napoli with a nice 2-1 win over Cagliari. Uh, Victor Osman with an assist for Kavachkalia yeah. for the winner. Graham, the, the the assist here, which is going viral as well, it was um it was one of those ones where he kept juggling the ball and thought, I, I can keep going. I can keep yeah. taking another touch. I'll take another touch. I'll take another touch. It was like, um, do you remember Curlon, the Brazilian player who yes, was nicknamed the, the Seal because he kept uh, bobbing the ball with his head through a vein. Yeah, tackles. it was like uh, Ronaldinho in a Nike advert. Uh, or some, something <laughs> like that and the, the thing that makes it even crazier is even when it drops to the ground the ball he then does this sort of flick behind his standing leg and then squares it for Kvalitskaria to, to kind of finish into the empty, empty net it was a ridiculous assist and if uh, listeners haven't seen it I would very much recommend going and looking for it incredible stuff yeah very impressive indeed as was Christian Pulisic's game for AC Milan uh, Milan with a 3-0 win over Monza Pulisic assisting the opener in this one almost made it 3-0 as well Graham with a really good sort of curling shot yeah. from outside the box it hit the woodwork with his weaker foot as well good stuff Yep, that was an absolute rocket. Comes off the sort of underside of the bar, bounces not right down onto the line. I didn't know how to describe it because it hit the corner. Is that the is that the post or the like the uh, the crossbar? I don't know. The, yeah, the it's not upper ninety because actually goes into the net, isn't it? An upper yeah. ninety shot. I don't know. Hits the hits the corner of uh, cross and and uh, crossbar and post. It was yeah. it was a good effort nonetheless. And I watched this one live um, because it was Sunday morning. And what else was I going to do on a Sunday morning? But it was fairly comprehensive from AC Milan. The third goal. Um, which I, is, is one that doesn't really have um, Pulisic's involvement in it. But in particular, that was a very, very well-worked goal with uh, Noah Okafor finishing it off. 18-year-old Jan Carlo Simic scoring on his debut as well, coming off the bench. So he's someone to keep an eye on, I think, AC Milan. Have uh, high hopes for him. But yes, from a US point of view, Pulisic's performance was was the real highlight. He was very dangerous in this one. He was indeed. Let's go to Spain, Joe Lowry. Shall we talk about Barcelona not getting a win at Valencia? A 1-1 draw there? Oh, it just feels like the same story for Barcelona over and over and over again to the point where the Michel to Barcelona conversation feels like it's getting to become more relevant. So much good stuff from Barcelona in this game, legitimately, like so much good attacking stuff along the way. They created tons of chances, especially early in the second half. It is one of the best goals of the weekend that Barcelona scored to put them up 1-0 in this game. It's 55th minute. Frankie de Jong scoops the ball over the top of Valencia's back line right to Rafinha, who then cuts it across for uh, Jao Felix Tappen. Jao Felix, excuse me. Uh, it's 1-0 Barcelona in that moment. They just cannot finish games right now. Valencia get a goal back in the 70th minute. It's a bad cross down from, from Valencia on their right side, Barcelona's left side. And Barcelona let the ball bounce in their box. Then Valencia win it. And it's a banger that makes it 1-1. It's not good defending. It's not horrific defending either in that moment. Barcelona just cannot see out a result that's going to give them three points right now. They were a few hundred yards better in the first half and probably a mile better in the second half. It just didn't matter. And, and frankly, I think their title chances are zero at this point. Yeah, one of the most confusing things about Barcelona at the moment, Joe, is Robert Lewandowski and his performances. At, at this point, it really wouldn't surprise me if Barcelona sold him in January. He really has suffered a drop-off this season, uh, and there has been some speculation that Saudi Arabian clubs are interested in him, and if they come along with a big fee, Barcelona and the financial condition they're in, as I say, wouldn't surprise me if he left in January. But the weird thing is, when you watch Barcelona at the moment, I agree with everything you said, Joe. I actually thought this was their best performance for a long while in terms of just the general balance yeah, of the game, what they created. But what when you watch them, they come across as a team that's just lacking that player to put the ball in the back of the net. But they're starting with Robert Lewandowski as their number nine. He was meant to be that player. He was that player last season. So his performances are, are, are just kind of confusing to me in that I wouldn't see he as missing sitters on a on a on a a weekly basis he's still getting opportunities of sorts he has a, a kind of acrobatic scissor kick in this game which is probably quite a low xg opportunity but nonetheless he is having shots on goal he just doesn't seem to be as sharp as he was last season and I think that can be forgiven somewhat 
but then I think it's the case, this is my understanding at least with Robert Lewandowski at Barcelona, that because he is such a good goal scorer and does so many things so consistently in front of goal, he is maybe forgiven for a lack of effort elsewhere, specifically on the defensive side, specifically on the pressing side of things. And I think when he's scoring goals, maybe they're going to forgive him a little bit for not executing his pressing responsibilities as much as he needs to when he's not scoring and he's looking frustrated and he's not shaking a 16 year old's hand and all that other drama, it then becomes more of an issue and more of a talking point. And I do think that's where we are with him at Barca right now, that unless he gets that goal scoring form going, it just doesn't feel like a thing that's going to be fixed anytime soon. Uh, Real Madrid with a 4-1 win over Villarreal. Uh, Luka Modric, Graham, with the maybe the second best assist of the weekend. The uh, the cross for Jude Bellingham, the one-touch lovely cross here. Jude Bellingham's 13th goal of the season in this one. Yeah, it's what Luka Modric does, and it's also what Jude Bellingham does. I remember right back at the start of the season, I thought I was being clever and making a big, bold statement when I said after about three games that Jude Bellingham would get 20 goals this season. For Real Madrid, he's at, at this rate, he's going to have 20 goals by Christmas, by the time the, <laughs> the end of the year comes round. Honestly, Real Madrid, just talking about their general performance, they're really good to watch at the moment. This was another good performance. Real Madrid, they just play with so much pace and intensity. The counter-press here gave Villarreal so many problems, it contributed to two of the goals from memory. Um, and even though Villarreal scored... They scored from basically their only attack in essentially the whole game. Real Madrid were very, very strong in defensive transition. And their performances and their results are even more impressive when you consider the sheer number of injuries Real Madrid have at the moment. I think with Barcelona, their injuries have kind of... There's been more discussion about their injury list over the last few months. Real Madrid at this point, so they're missing Courtois, Militao, Camavinga, Chiumeni, Vinicius Jr., Danny Carvajal, and now David Alaba, unfortunately, looks to have picked up a pretty serious injury. He comes off in this this game. It looked like maybe a knee yeah. injury, which is never a good one, particularly for him. I think he's got a bit of a patchy track record with knee injuries. So at the moment, it means that Real Madrid, they just have two fit centre-backs right now. I think it's Rudiger and Nacho Fernandez. So I, I do wonder how many more injuries they can absorb. But Ancelotti keeps adapting and it's working because his team is playing really well right now. They are indeed. In the general, Franco can only tell one of us to change our name. Derby Athletic Club with a 2-0 win over Atletico Madrid. <laughs> You've used that one before, but it it's makes me one. laugh it's every single time. Um, this was a complete beatdown, this game, but not in the direction you might have predicted before the game because it was Athletic Club who were very impressive. Probably the worst that I've seen Atleti play this season. Soyonchu in particular for Atletico Madrid. This was his first start in La Liga since joining from Leicester in the summer. He had a complete nightmare. He gave away a penalty, which Sunset ended up missing, but he also never got to grips with the pace of Athletic in attack. So, yes, it was very poor by, by Atletico Madrid, but also Athletic Club were sensational in this game. And the two Williams brothers um, were so, so dangerous throughout the 90 minutes. A brilliant finish by Nico Williams for the second goal. Uh, Iñaki Williams also posed a threat throughout. And Ernesto Valverde, remember him, he is doing a quietly excellent job at Athletic Club this season. They're flying under the radar a bit and are contenders for a top four finish at the moment. They are indeed. Uh, once again, listener, that Nico Williams goal was lovely. Go check that one out if you can. Uh, Girona can go top again if they beat Alaves uh, on this very Monday as we record. Uh, in the any other business section, of course, Graham, you had a very close eye on the Club World Cup, which is happening at the moment in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Al-Ali uh, of Egypt with a 3-1 win over Al-Attihad of Saudi Arabia. Karim Benzema missing a penalty in that one. Uh, he has N'Golo Kante and Fabinho in his team at Al Hitihad mm. does uh, for uh, Karim Benzema. They will go no further. We also had Leon, uh, the CONCACAF champions, taking on Uraka Red Diamonds. I watched that one. Yeah, you did? Yeah, I did, because I'm thinking about writing about Urua for Sicker. the newsletter. Uh, and I also saw the Al Hitihad score as well. So <laughs> I might be the only person who's been watching some of the, the Club World Cup. Not out of choice, I, I, I have to say. But yeah. yes, I did catch those two results. So the, the Urawa were red diamonds with a wonder win over Leon. Not, so the semi-finals are... Not sorry? out of choice, Graham? Like, so, <laughs> someone's Graham was forcing forcibly, you to do this? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> What? I have Christmas presents to buy, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> 
money oh, to earn. <laughs> ah, okay. I was chasing that dollar. Very good. Uh, the semi-finals of this contest are on Monday and Tuesday. Fluminense taking on the aforementioned Alali and Manchester City taking on Urara Red Diamonds, which is really hard to say. Uh, a wonder uh, win over Leon once again they had. Uh, we also learned, or we are learning, that the 2025 edition of the Club World Cup will be held in the United States of America. 32 teams in June and July. Uh, Graham, Scottish League Cup final. I got my sigh in too early. <laughs> you did, because this was a terrible, terrible match. Rangers claimed the first piece of silverware uh, of the season in Scotland. They beat Aberdeen 1-0 in, as you say, the League Cup final on Sunday. The dynamic in, in the, at the top of Scottish football has shifted a bit in recent weeks, where Celtic are in atrocious form right now. They lost to Hearts on Saturday. They've lost back-to-back matches in the league now for the first time in years they lost to Kilmarnock the week before that so Rangers winning this match and this trophy just adds to the sense that maybe they could win the title as well as poor as they have been this season I don't think Celtic are up to much and honestly there's a big discussion about the poor quality of the the Scottish Premiership as a whole this season the Ross County manager uh, Derek Adams who has uh, he's been around the English lower leagues I don't know if you can recognize his name Ryan I think he was in league two until fairly recently he's now the Ross County manager and he called the stand shocking on Saturday and I, I might have to agree with them it's been a really really poor season uh, so yeah that's my bit selling the Scottish Premiership to an American audience come and watch the SPFL <laughs> amazing thank you very much for that Graham makes notes to cut out Graham's Scottish bit as we do every week good okay um, uh, one more thing we're going to cover the Champions League draw but we've gone long enough here why don't we go on to the Patreon patreon.com slash total soccer show we're going to talk a bit about the Champions League draw which has also taken place over this weekend if we're going to call Monday the weekend which we are why not Uh, but for now weekend review is done Taylor Rockwell thank you kindly it's good to have you back buddy uh, it's good to be back. Uh, I got to get my my lung capacity back up. Apparently being sick doesn't really help uh, when it comes to recording. So I apologize for a spotty performance, but it's very nice to be back, gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, Two yeah. weeks of Antonio Conte training for you over the Vegas <laughs> period. No ketchup. No ketchup. Up. Yes, of course. <laughs> no ranch uh, being... was already not a problem, but no ketchup could be harder. Wonderful stuff. Uh, being sick doesn't help, but being a soccer sicko helps very much. Graham Rutherford, thank you very much. <laughs> That's me. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. <laughs> and Joe Lowry, a pleasure as always, my good man. I don't know how I'm still floored by Graham's viewing habits, but here I am sitting here floored. Graham, well played. Yeah. Club World Cup uh, analyst Graham Rutherford with us here. I would go that again. far. <laughs> Listener, thank you for joining us here. We'll be back on the feed very shortly indeed. But for now, bye. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.